Well, last week I came out late to demonstrate when, how painful it is when God is late, and I can't do that again. I had to promise I didn't do that again because I gave my wife a heart attack just about when the stage is just empty. What's going on? Who's going to speak? Um, well, welcome again to Encounter. We're in part three of a three-part series called God Problems. So by the end of today, you're going to have all of your God problems sorted out. Everything is good. If you have a God problem after today, that's on you, not me. I did my part. You're going to be you. Uh, no, um, just as a recap of the series so far, we've taken a look at when, uh, when God is silent and we don't hear anything from him in part one. We heard about when God shows up just late in part two of the series. And today we'll take a look at when God gives a very clear and resounding answer, but it's the exact opposite answer that we wanted. It's when God says no. And I'll tell you just how painful this is, especially when, when what we think God should do is just so clear and so simple that we look at God and we're like, hey man, if I was doing your job, I could do this thing so much better. Like I know what the clear answer is. Why don't you just go ahead and do it? And every time we say that, it's like the no becomes all that much more clear. And it's frustrating because oftentimes we're not asking God to show up and, and perform a miracle and do some amazing things. In fact, we're not asking God to really go above and beyond really the expectations at all. We're just sort of asking God to show up and just kind of bring us up to uh, almost average, not going way above. That's it. That's where the bar is. We're not making a very big ask of God. We're not asking God to like just bring Mr. Right or Miss Right right into my life this weekend. Just saying, God, a date would be incredible. That's all I'm saying right now is this weekend. We're not asking God to say, hey, this is the career of the lifetime. It's clear. It's compelling. It's right in front of you. God, just give me an interview. Give me something to know that you're out there and that, you're clear and that you care. And he just says, no. God, I don't need to know that I have the marriage of a lifetime or I, the best marriage in the world or the perfect relationship. I just need to know that he's willing to work it out or that she's going to continually show up in the relationship. And God can't even give that. I'll tell you um, what's so frustrating for me, because I've had it where I ask God to show up in, in really just the smallest way, but the most significant way for me. It's uh, my son is uh, number two. He's uh, for ages one to maybe three, almost four, he's uh, struggled with like these breathing issues, right? Like, uh, especially now when the temperature goes down and, uh, you know, the breathing becomes more labored and it's got that croupy kind of cough. Some of you parents know what I'm talking about. Nothing strikes fear in the heart of a, of a young parent more than waking up in the middle of the night to that like deep, barky kind of cough. It's, just, it's terrifying to think about your kid, uh, your little one, not being able to breathe well. And so I remember these sleepless nights, right, of lying on his floor next to, uh, next to the crib when he's just a little one. And, you know, and I can just like hear his, his labored breathing, right, like his... <gasps> is wheezing. And I just like, God, you know, do something about this, right? I know you care. I know your love. I know you're powerful. You know, just do whatever you need to do to make the, the illness, the virus, whatever it is, go away so that he can breathe more, right? And we're just like, 
up at night and, and wondering whether or not to take them in again or not. And it's just, it's, it's intense. And the whole time wrestling and praying, pleading with God, there's just like that wheezing sound in the background. I'll tell you what happens. Um, what happens is the same thing for me if, if it is for you. Uh, if it's a medical thing, if it's a health thing, sometimes in your begging and your pleading with God, you tend to get uh, like really medical in your prayer life, like assuming that's going to help. And so you're like, um, God, may the albuterol like fill his lungs and clear the airways, right? Or like, God, may the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory like reduce the, like whatever, like specificity was the problem in the prayer. Uh, and then you start pleading with God, or at least I do in those moments where I'm just, I'm lying there and I'm just, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I cannot sleep. I haven't slept. And then I'm like, God, you know, um, he, he's sick, so I'm not sleeping. And that means that I'm not going to have anything to say to your people this weekend. And so like, God, if your people want to be edified, you're really going to have to cure him so I can sleep so they can learn. <laughs> and then I hear the breathing. And I know that the answer, again, is a clear and resounding no. God, why? Do something. Show up. I'm not asking for too much. And yet the response is no. I want to go to a place in the Bible this morning to help, help us understand why that answer is sometimes a clear no. And, and what we can do, what we can learn as a result of it. But as we get into the story, before, before we go there, I want us to have the humility to say, sometimes God doesn't make sense. And sometimes that's okay. Because if God always made sense to you, your God is far too small. It's okay if God doesn't make sense because if he always made sense and he never did anything beyond your understanding, beyond my understanding or my imagination, that God would be far too small. And we gathered here today to experience, to worship a God far bigger than our own limited imagination. So we're going to go there when God says no, and it makes no sense to us in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The words are going to be on the screen behind me. You can pull out a Bible underneath the chairs in front of you. Uh, page number is in the program. You can take that Bible home. We give those away all the time. We love that. As you're flipping to it, I want to fill some context in on the church in Corinth, where the letter of Corinthians is written to. We're going to flip to 2 Corinthians, so presumably there's a 1 Corinthians, and you're right, there is. There's actually quite a few letters written to the church in Corinth. Um, the scholar's best guess is something like four letters written from Paul to the church in Corinth. Some of them are put together in 1 Corinthians. Others of them we think are maybe lost along the way. We have two so we call them first and second Corinthians. What we're dropping in on is probably the fourth letter to the Corinthians. And the reason why I say that, why it's important, is you have to know this isn't happening in a vacuum. Uh, this conversation's excerpt that we're going to read is happening in the context of a relationship that spans a long, long time. Uh, in fact, uh, Paul has started the church in Corinth uh, that the letters is called Corinthians. Um, so he has a lot of influence there. At least he had a lot of influence there. If, uh, if you're visiting here today from like another church and, uh, and it's just kind of nice to be away because you're like, man, that church is messed up. They've got all kinds of problems. Or 
if you're a regular here at Encounter Church and you're going, this church is totally messed up and the leadership has no idea what they're doing and they're totally inexperienced and you're absolutely right. But if, uh, if you're coming at a place, if you're at a church where you're going, my church is messed up, I encourage you to read the book of Corinthians. Uh, it's not going to help, maybe, but it's not going to give you any answers, but it's going to make you feel better about your church experience. These are people who struggle with some of the most base level, like Christianity 101 kind of stuff, where Paul is taking time in Corinthians to simply like point out, hey, you should probably not be intimate with people that you're not married to, not groundbreaking, earth-shattering kind of Christian insight, but yet the people are clearly struggling with this. It's Christianity 101 kind of stuff. He goes, when you guys do church, and it's like, it's not quite like this, it's like a house church, it's a big, large estate, uh, particularly when you're celebrating the Lord's Supper in your worship service. Maybe, maybe it's not okay to have like the affluent rich people having the best food and drink in the best area of the home and literally have the poor Christians in the church out on the front yard tossing them scraps and leftovers and call that church and call that the Lord's Supper. Like maybe that's not okay. Again, not groundbreaking insight, but it's base level stuff that the people are struggling with. And now as Paul is speaking into this church in 2 Corinthians, what the people had started doing is like rejecting his leadership, rejecting his influence, rejecting his uh, authority over them. And he's going like, this is so frustrating because on the one hand, he goes, he started the church in Corinth, so that's gotta be worth something. And the second part, and infinitely more important, Paul has only given them exactly what he has received from Jesus Christ himself. So it's not really Paul's authority or influence that they're rejecting. It's the authority and influence of Jesus Christ himself that they're like, no, nah, pass on a lot of that. And it's so frustrating to him. So now in 2 Corinthians, he's coming up, he's butting up against this like leadership influence kind of tension in his relationship with the church in Corinth. Let's read 2 Corinthians 12, and we'll pick it up in verse 6, where he goes, hey, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. Now, the word structure and the grammar use that's employed here is a technical structure. Most scholars uh, agree that it's actually called a humble brag. <laughs> Some of you know what I'm talking about on that. A humble brag is like when somebody posts on Facebook, like, oh, the struggle, you know, I, I got into my top three favorite schools. How will I ever choose? And you're like, unfriend, thank you. Uh, person who's like, hey, does, uh, does Twitter work in, in Madrid and Paris because it didn't work in uh, Hong Kong last month? <laughs> you're like, okay, I'm done with it. It's a humble brag. It's like this way of you know, pretending to, to be down to earth, but really you just wanted to show everybody, show off like what you've done. Nobody has the right to do this more than Paul. I mean, this is a guy, if you have any kind of faith, great or small, maybe you're just hanging on to faith by your fingertips this morning and you came. If you have any kind of faith, chances are you could trace that faith back to the Apostle Paul, because he's the one that introduced Western civilization to Christianity. Like, he's the one that brought it out of Jerusalem. I mean, that's, that's Paul. 
This, Paul is a guy, he's been shipwrecked, snake bitten, and stoned. Not like that. We, we visited that last week. It's a different guy. It's with, with the rocks. But now that I mention it, and we recently had a proposal go through in the state of Michigan, I'm going to just like address it for just a second here. This is somewhat, it's very tangential. But so I had somebody who will remain nameless, no pointing fingers, I can see you, uh, but ask me a question like, so Dirk, I know we do February, where guys get together and it's like home brewing. Yeah, okay, we just sit tight. Uh, <laughs> are we going to do stoned timber as, <laughs> as well? I'm like, you are a weird church, and I love you. But the answer is no, okay? And here's why. I mean, there's one, there's, there's a way that you could justify and say like, hey, listen, okay, craft beer, like Grand Rapids is cultural, but it's also like you can enjoy that without messing yourself up. The reason why we're not going to do Stone Timber is the same reason we don't do like Drunk December. It's because like the explicit goal is to like wreck the minds that God gave us. This is entirely tangential to the point that I'm making with Paul, back to him. If anybody has the right to brag and to leverage that influence, it would be Paul. But he doesn't. Instead, he kind of zigs when everybody else would have zagged. And he says this in the next thing. He goes, remember, I'm not bragging, even though I could, and it would all be true. But I refrain. So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Um, this is, this is it's impressive, because he's essentially saying here, he goes, I don't, need to, I don't need to embellish. I don't need to round up. I don't need to exaggerate in any kind of way. I don't need to talk. I don't need to do anything. It's like he just sort of slides his resume across the table and says, when you're ready, I'll be in touch, and gets up and walks out. I mean, the dude's got swag. But, but he, he twists it in the next line when he starts talking about why it is that he doesn't have a big head over all of these amazing things that God has done through him. And I think it's going to be helpful to us. Listen, it says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited and keep me from getting a big head, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Some of you have heard that expression of a thorn in my flesh. You know, so-and-so is a thorn in my flesh. Maybe you're sitting next to a thorn in your flesh or something like that. Uh, this is where that expression comes from in the Bible. Some of you have like asking like, hey, how's your day? How's your week going? And you're like, I have had the week from. And Paul is saying kind of literally, he goes, no, no, no. That's me. Like this thorn in my flesh has come from hell, from Satan himself, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, sometimes we think of thorn as like, oh, I'm out for a hike and I got this little like pricker thing in my shoe and that's annoying. I have to take off my boot, take it out and then like continue on, forgetting about it 15 seconds later. Maybe it would help your picture to know that thorn here could also be translated and in other places it's translated as stake. It's not simply like a thorn in my flesh. It's also like a stake in my side or calling to mind the sacrifice of Christ, a stake in my hands or feet, a thorn in my flesh. And we don't know exactly what the thorn was 
that Paul was referring to. Some people speculate that maybe he had intense migraines. People, may have, uh, people said that he may have had uh, symptoms of ongoing malaria that caused severe fatigue and kept him from doing his work and it tormented him. Uh, people even uh, went on to say that he had maybe epilepsy and had seizures. And so while he was speaking, he would seize up and convulse on the ground and people didn't know how to deal with that. And so they speculated that he had, uh, he, he had a, some kind of a demonic um, takeover. Now, I don't, I don't know about any of that stuff. Others say that he had maybe a speech impediment or a sight impairment where he couldn't, he wrote one letter with, and he, in the Bible and he said, I'm writing this now with, uh, with my own hand in large letters. Um, you know, people speculate that maybe that was because he couldn't see very well, so he had somebody else write these letters for him. I don't, I don't know what it was, but, but like the frustration behind that though, I mean, this is as God asked him to do something and then God allowed him to experience this thorn or this stake that in a lot of ways prevented him from more effectively doing the very thing that God called him to do in the first place. You can kind of see how this is, this is somewhat senseless from Paul's perspective. So it's, so it's kind of like this. It's nothing like this, but I'm going to use this metaphor anyway. When I was 12... I wanted a riding lawnmower. And I begged and pleaded my dad to upgrade our kind of janky push lawnmower to a rider. Now you should probably know that it was a small suburban lot and I didn't really need a riding lawnmower. But I remember some of the arguments that I made, right? Of saying like, dad, you know how it's my job. I'm supposed to cut the grass every week. Yes. And you know how it gets done usually every other week, whether it needs it or not. He's like, I'm aware. Uh, <laughs> And you know how the lines are somewhat not straight and curved, and it's just not done well, not building your case, but like all of this could go away if you would just get me a nice new riding lawnmower. How does that sound? I know, I know that this is what you want done, the lawn to be cut in a timely way, done well. And this, this is going to help me help you do what I know you want to do. I never got a riding lawnmower, <laughs> long story short. Um, and the reason for that is my dad is cheap and doesn't want to spend a lot of money. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just, my dad goes here, so just kidding, dad. <laughs> Appreciate it. Uh, but if we were to use that analogy and, to, and point it at God and say, God, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not like you're going to buy anything that you couldn't afford. It's not like it's any time spent at work to buy this thing. It's, it's not anything but a snap of your fingers or a thought in your mind. And boom, the riding lawnmower appears or, or the thorn in the flesh, the stake in my side just disappears so that I can get back to doing what I know, God, you want me to do. So why don't you do it? And it's easy, isn't it, to say things like, well, I understand why you didn't get a riding lawnmower. And it's even kind of easy to look at Paul and Paul and to say, I don't know, maybe God had a pretty good reason for keeping that thorn in his flesh that whole time. I'll tell you, it's a lot harder when you're sitting across from somebody and they're suffering, just this chronic 
and severe, excruciating pain. And nobody can really figure out why. And it's going on and on and on. And you do anything to, to help take it away from them. But, but nobody has really any answers. And you're begging and you're pleading. You're saying, God, why wouldn't you take this thing away? You have a plan for their life. Take it away so they can get on with the plan. It's a lot harder to sit with somebody who's suffering what seems like an endless season of depression or anxiety that's crippling. And it's like, God, take this load off so that they can get back to doing what I know you have called them to do. It doesn't make any sense to me. And we pray and we pray and we pray. And every time we pray, it's almost like we can hear that. And the answer is a clear and resounding no. So what happened? Did our prayer not work? Did God not hear? Do we have to get more medical with the prayer or bargain? I don't think so. Listen to what happens. The next line, just the next line, verse 8, three times Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. When he says three times, I don't think he's talking about, you know, uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I asked God to take away the thorn, and he didn't. So, okay. I, I don't think he's like, on my way into work, I prayed three times. Take it away, take it away, take it away. And he didn't. I think he's talking about this long season of prayer. And then we start to get a little bit closer to why I think this is happening in the first place. So I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was a newly minted pastor, um, I had the opportunity to officiate for a friend's wedding. He lived out of town and it all looked good. It all looked on the up and up. And it's the first time actually that I've never been involved one-on-one -on -one through the, the premarital counseling, premarital like enrichment process. It was a huge regret for me. I'll tell you why. Because after I officiated the wedding, it was almost immediate, uh, certainly within a year, that everything started to go sideways. I mean, just, just horrible in the worst possible way. I mean, just this very ugly, very public, like break up, lies on lies, infidelity. And this is happening like within months of the ceremony. And I'm just on the phone constantly with my friend, like walking, talking, crying, crying out to each other, crying out before God, tears pouring down. God, how could you allow this? God, show up and fix something. God, make something out of this ugly mess. And the only thing I got was a clear and resounding no. That was almost a decade ago. And I look back at it now with some perspective. And I think, I, I don't know. I, I don't have the, the pride to, to suggest or to give insights as to what God was doing. But I know he did something with that prayer, with that season of pleading and begging with God, recruiting many of you to pray as well. Number one, it reminded me how little control I actually have. It reminded me that I am not in control. It reminded my friend in the starkest way, he is not in control. 
and through the begging and through the pleading, it kept us both in the presence of the one who is. We go through these seasons of begging and pleading and praying to God to take away these thorns. Paul goes through this season of begging and pleading to take away that stake in his side, the thorn in his flesh. And I think it reminds them. So he doesn't become egotistical. He doesn't become conceited. It reminds him that he is not ultimately in control. And throughout that season, it keeps him in the presence of the one who is. And then we start to get some answers in verse nine. Starts to deviate from many of our experience when God says no. This time for Paul, something unique happens is that Jesus shows up and gives them an answer. Verse nine, Jesus said, he said to me, Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough for you. I thought we were talking about stakes and sides and thorns and fleshes and torment from hell. You're talking about, yeah, but at least you're forgiven. That's the mistake that a lot of us make, I think. The, the mistake that thinking that grace is somehow limited to what happens at the end of our life you know, about a minute after we die and we stand before God in heaven and he calls us to give an account and he's got all this dirt on us, right? Uh, for our whole lives. And he's just showing it to us. And we're like, I got nothing for that. And then Jesus shows up and like all of that guilt and all of that hurt that we cause, it like gets turned from us onto him and he suffers the penalty of death on a cross for the remission of all of that. And we call that like process grace because God graced us with life eternally. Except for we, we like limit grace at just that, and we say, yeah, that's grace. That'll be effective, that's gonna come in real handy about a second after I'm dead. But for right now, when I got a stake in my side or a thorn in my flesh, you're talking to me about grace being enough? I don't think that we often understand that grace for Paul here, grace is the ability to get through the day. Grace is the ability to, to go through another shift. Grace is the ability to wake up in the morning. The next breath that you take is grace in your life. I'll tell you who gets this. Who gets this, I think, more than anybody else? Addicts. People who've been addicted to something, people who have struggled with something, they will tell you, no, no, grace is the reason why I'm standing here. Grace, grace gives me my next breath. Because you know what? I should be six feet under instead of six feet over. I should be face down dead in a drained pool somewhere if it wasn't for grace. Every step that I take, every breath that I draw, every time I get out of bed in the morning, that day, that breath, that step, that's grace in my life. And Paul's saying, I don't have the answer that I'm looking for. I don't understand it, but I'm going to draw a breath and I'm going to keep going. And the power to keep going is called grace. Some of you showed up here today against all odds because something was keeping you back and maybe you, just, you didn't want to be in the presence of God's people. You couldn't stand the thought of being in the presence of God after this week or this season. But you came anyway, and that's grace. 
in your life. And Paul is saying, I don't have it all, but grace for today, for this step, for this breath, that's sufficient for me. And then he takes it in a turn in a direction that I would never wish on anybody. And he starts talking about grace in weakness. For my power, this is still Jesus talking now. For my power is made perfect in, help me out, weakness. Therefore, I'll boast, Paul says, all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that's why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. My power is perfected, is brought to completion, is finished, is finalized, is accomplished in weakness. And that's like the part of this that just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And at the same time, none of us, if it were optional, none of us would sign up for this. Because isn't it true that we all want God to show his glory, to show his power in strength, not weakness, in ability, not inability, in success, not failure. Isn't it true that, that we love, I love a great story when somebody stands up amidst all the applause, gets behind the podium to accept the award and starts off with a list and says, I'd like to thank my my composers, I'd like to thank my producer, my family. I'd like to thank God in, in heaven for giving me the ability to perform as, as I've performed this year. And I love a story like that because it puts human beings, it puts us in right relation in where we stand before God. Every success, every ability, every power that we have is given to us by God Almighty himself. And I love when people use that opportunity, use that stage to showcase the power and the glory of God. And isn't it true that we love, all of us, many of us, I guess, would love to be the person who, the receiver who catches the ball in the end zone with two seconds left in the fourth quarter and drags his feet through, falling out of bounds, but making sure that he's still in bounds and standing up after spiking the ball in a little dance, pointing to God in heaven as if to say, it was his power in my life, not my own. And to use that stage as an opportunity to showcase the glory of God. I love that. I love it whenever I hear stories about some successful person driving around in a fancy car with a happy wife and a happy life and everything is perfect. And somebody younger and more aspiring is like, how do you do it? What's your secret? And the guy genuinely leans over and this is the secret is that nothing belongs to me. It's all God's and everything is a gift from him including myself and my ability. I love a story when people use the stage that they have of ability, of success, of strength to showcase the glory and power of God. And none of us would ever sign up for the other side when God uses weakness, inability, and failure 
to showcase his power and his glory. I think about some of the most compelling God stories, and I get to hear a lot of them. Thank you. <laughs> some of the most compelling God stories of power in his people's lives, honestly, aren't the ones that are on the stage of success and ability and strength. Some of those compelling God stories I hear are ones on the stage of weakness. When I sit with somebody and they're undergoing continual, excruciating pain and they have no answers, and they say, grace for today, that's enough. And I say, how could you say something like that? Or somebody who's going on the 40th week of unemployment. And I sit there. I say, tell me about their struggle. And they say, yeah, maybe tomorrow. But today, God is good. And I think, how could you say something like that in the place that you are? But it's so compelling to me, at least, when, when, when somebody uses the stage of their weakness and their inability or their personal failure. And God's power shows up. This week, you're going to head into it. And you might have a stage of strength or you might have a stage of weakness. Use whatever stage God gives you to show his power, his glory, like none other. So Encounter Church is about eight years old, and we were not alone when this church started. Uh, we started out, and, uh, and it launched on a kind of a cheesy date. It was 10-10-10, October 10, 2010. It was a whole bunch of churches around the nation that all started at the same time. And I was in school, in uh, pastor's training school, seminary at the time, and I knew a couple of guys. And the three of us, we were all starting new churches together, all in, in different areas. And over the course of those first two, three years, for whatever reason, God saw fit to continue encounter, to keep on growing it and building it. And for whatever reason, for two of these guys, God did some amazing work in the short run, but in the end, it wasn't sustainable. And they had to close up and shut down. Now, I need you to understand the pain that's involved there. Some of you who have some of you had to close businesses, and it's like parting out a part of your soul. When Encounter first started, I used to joke, how many kids do you have? <laughs> I've got three, a boy and a girl in a baby church. <laughs> and they're all growing. That's good. Thank God. And so I remember one of them in particular, a friend of mine, you know, God did some amazing work. He led some people to the faith. Lives were transformed. But in the end, it wasn't enough, and it closed down. And so I got a chance to connect with them up and offer some encouragement along the way and then just ask an honest and simple question. If you could go back, you're a talented guy, really any established church would have you. You could go back and not try to start something new, but if you just go to some other church and, and just everything was sort of like even along the way, you didn't feel like you had to part up your soul along the way. If you could go back and undo the last three years and make it something else, would you? And he thought about it and he said, the good and the bad, all of it 
is wiped out. Yeah, undoing it all. Would you change it? And he said, I would never, I would never want to experience again what I experienced. But no. For the sake of the people that did meet Jesus along the way, I wouldn't undo it. Because his will is infinitely more important than my way. And I take this back. May God be praised on the stage of our success. Even as he's glorified on the stage of our failure as well. I want you to stand up and let's pray to that God this morning. Gracious God, what does humility look like? What does it mean to be glorified in the stage of weakness? I can think of nothing more clear, God, than stepping down from heaven, taking all of the power and authority of what it means to be God and just suspending it while you become obedient to death even death on a cross. God, you showed us what it means to show us what your power looks like, to show us what strength looks like in the midst of weakness. God, we hand over our failures. We hand over our inability. We hand over our weakness to you and to say, not my way, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, we pray this in your name. And we all said, amen.